0: Well, comrade, what now?
1: I, hey, governor, straightforward conversation, I say! <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, hello! What's this now?
0: <laughs> I was wondering what kind of voice you were going to provide today, and you did not disappoint me.
2: Crikey!
1: it started yeah. out as british but it just became australian <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> i thought you were doing one of those cockney accents and then i was doing cockney the but dundee. <laughs> <Crikey>. <laughs> i dundee
1: crikey that's not a knife that's a noise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i guess british people and australian people sound the same to you
1: <laughs> look at his sharp sharp teeth crikey I ran out of Britishisms to say, so I just decided to fill it in with other voices that I didn't know. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, A spot of tea? Would you like a spot of tea and crumpets? Uh, Hey, for those of you listening, this is literally going to be the entirety of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome! To Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew. Hey, hey, everybody. So this week, we're just going to do a review of a book that came out, I believe, last year. It's, uh, it's actually a book that is done by... Someone who follows us on Instagram and, you know, I wouldn't say we're super close but or anything. We're definitely not that. But we, uh, we are highly appreciative of his work and we're glad and happy that he follows us on Instagram. So we just thought that we'd take this opportunity to review this work. And, uh, yeah, that work is Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal.
0: Is it temporal or temporal?
1: Uh, it's whatever you want it to be. (laughs) All right.
0: Uh, All right. Nice recovery. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, hey, man, I'm all about you, me, everybody just living their best lives, man. Just go do what you're going to do. You be about what you be about.
0: Let us hold hands and sing Kumbaya.
1: Let us be about what we be being about. That's right. for real. All right. Let's give the good people a little bit of background.
0: Drew? Okay. So, again, the book is Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal. It is written by Garth Ennis. The art is by Goran Suzuka. The color is by Miroslav Mirva. Rob Steen is the letterer. And the main covers on the series were done by Andy Clark and Jose Villarubia. And of course, like any other modern comic, there's a slew of variant covers that are included in the trade paperback edition as well. This was an eight-issue miniseries published by AWA under their Upshot imprint. The issues came out in 2021, and the trade paperback was released in 2022. We discussed Garth Ennis quite a bit back in episode 146 when we talked about Fury, my war gone by. So I suppose there isn't really a great need to go back and regurgitate all of that. But before we move on to the rest of the creative team, do you have anything you do want to say about Garth Ennis
1: at the top of this episode? Oh, no, you're right. I, I really do feel that we've covered him. I mean, we've dedicated entire episodes to his work. So, you know, if anybody wants to know what we think of the man, uh, then, you know, by all means, go check out those episodes. Uh, I don't have them off the top of my head, but, you know, we'll maybe let let the good people know some way, maybe through Instagram or something, uh, just what episodes they can check out, but yeah we we do have episodes where we talked about him he's he's a big name right now he's very he's very prolific and popular especially right now because so many of the stuff that he's worked on is is you know i hate to say it but it's making it to television so it's getting a wider uh exposure. exposure to the 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 population at large so he's worked on things like preacher which is which got converted into a show he's the the most popular thing that he's probably known for is probably the boys uh which is just a phenom at the moment well i mean when it came out it was really big i don't know if it's still quite as popular uh fans tend to be pretty fickle and tend to have a pretty short attention span when it comes to that sort of thing but I'm
0: sure when the next season drops, it'll be back in the zeitgeist again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I remember when it came out, it was such a resounding success for Amazon that not only did they immediately renew it for uh, new episodes, they they basically took that opportunity to let the world know that they were going to invest in a, I guess... The popular term is like a shared universe. So they they had a bunch of spin-offs and shows that they were just gonna extend outward from the main series. So no, I
0: didn't even realize that.
1: Yeah. Uh from what I remember that was the case. I'd I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty confident that that's what they decided to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I would want
0: to say about Garth Ennis before we move on is, is that, uh, well, I'm pretty sure we probably mentioned this in the episode when we talked about Fury, my war gone by, but I feel like Garth Ennis is one of those guys who has like two very distinct styles that he's known for. And one of them is writing basically the best serious war comics you'll ever find in the medium just in terms of the amount of historical research that he does to the plots and the characterization and all the storytelling like his war comics are just incredible pieces of art and fiction that definitely deserve to be read and you can tell that the tone of those books is pretty different from a lot of his more
1: well-known popular stuff such it's pretty as- serious it's yeah. Pretty serious stuff. It's meant to be taken seriously. It's meant to be dramatic. Um mm-hmm. It's probably more profound than yeah, than his other mode that you mentioned, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's 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 more high I don't know. Not highfalutin, but you know, it's it's more literate. Literate. There we go. That's a good way to put it.
0: Yeah. And a lot of his other stuff uh, that does end up probably becoming a lot more popular tends to be more on the irreverent side. Uh, and it's not to say that his more irreverent works don't have any heart, because I think a lot of them do. Mm. Whether you're looking at something like The Boys or Preacher, um, to even some of his uh, like shorter... Miniseries at smaller publishers there's a a good mix of i guess tone variation in his popular works, but I think when I consider things like Preacher and the boys or <laughs> I guess the uh the poster boy for for what I'm referring to is probably something like crossed right. Like he's definitely a guy who could, has a trademark gross-out humor, you know. Yeah. Like there's a there's a silliness that he kind of revels in at times, and it can get it can go from anywhere from you know just your slapstick comedy to just straight up grotesque, horrible thing that you never would have imagined, but once you've seen it, you can't. Yeah.
1: Unimagine yeah. it. It's it's a lot of yeah. It, it feels like what you were saying is pretty accurate. He has these two modes where on the one hand, and he does this more serious work, but on the other end, it's really, like you said, it's not that it isn't without heart, but the, it feels like the emphasis tends to be placed more on the shock value of it than it is on the, uh, the literary aspects of it. And, you know, I get that for some people. That's a thing. Well, clearly, for a lot of people, that's a thing, because there are people who just want to imbibe in dark humor or gross-out humor. And, you know, sometimes that's okay. Sure, whatever. But uh, it's just a matter of taste, I'd say. Yeah. And I'll even say that—I'll
0: even point out that even some of his longer works come— they combine those kinds of tones where uh, I think of his series like Hitman or even Marvel Knights Punisher. Like both of those were pretty long runs on big two characters, and they mixed up like they kind of alternated between telling really silly kinds of rompy stories with the occasional bit of gross-out humor or just crass humor and yeah. and like alternated that with like more serious emotional relationship yeah. stuff and character uh development and stuff like that so it, it it's interesting to see like how we mix those things or even like yeah. in preacher where there's definitely a lot of stuff in there that's you know it's famous for for uh being over the top in certain respects and just depicting things that you wouldn't really uh I guess they just come off as like slapstick or really dark black comedy um or even over the top violence and grotesqueness shock value that kind of stuff but there's also a lot of things in preacher that discuss the nature of friendship or yeah romance and loyalty and, and just those kinds of ideals and it kind of alternates between being really absurd and being really emotionally hard-hitting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think it makes sense for his longer form works because, like you pointed out, his Punisher Max series, it's, it's, it's a pretty massively long run. And he tells a lot of different stories over the course of all the issues that he worked on, that he uh, was telling those stories. I want to say that it was like, what, 50-something issues? I think 60? closer
0: to 60 plus some one shots maybe yeah. like 65 issues I, I can't remember off the top of my head
1: Yeah so over the the course of that 60 approximately 60 issues he runs the gambit 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 whatever gambit gambit of you know storytelling that he is capable of telling and like you said he tends to go back and forth between
0: I was actually referring to as Marvel Knights Punisher because i th- I think his oh okay. Punisher Max run is actually pretty much serious most of the way through. like That's the true. the most over the top it gets is with uh, the Barracuda story, yeah, yeah. but if if anything, his Punisher Max can get pretty violent, but it's a violent that feels in tone with the world that he's established with a lot of gritty realism, right. I'm thinking, In Marvel Knight's Punisher, you have a mix of really silly stuff, like a gigantic Russian hitman that's essentially... Cyborg. Yeah, he's... (laughs) Well, first of all, he starts off as this unstoppable killer, and the only thing that kills him is getting a hot pizza thrown in his face and then having an obese man suffocate him by falling on his head. Yep, yep. And then, and then he comes back as a cyborg, except they put too much estrogen in him, and he ended up developing breasts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you're right, that that doesn't necessarily match in tone with his Punisher Max series, which was more or less a hard-hitting crime story or, or Punisher story, right? Yeah,
0: but I was gonna say even in Marvel Knights Punisher, he had some moments that were a bit more serious and, and like contemplative. Like you you'd have a story where the Punisher uses a steamroller and, you know, pretty much rolls over Wolverine, turning him into a Looney Tunes pancake, except for a skeleton. Yeah. But then you'll also have a story where Garth Ennis takes an issue to explore like the inner life of character or something you know like it's i think it leans more towards the crazy violence and comedy in the marvel knights run but there are still moments in the run where he tries to be more not necessarily profound but he tries to calm things down
1: at times yeah
0: so it's interesting to me to see that kind of mishmash of tones
1: yeah Well, I was going to say, okay, how about this then? If not Punisher Max, then we could look at something like Preacher is probably a good example of that, where it's a pretty decently long run, and over the course of all of his characters' arcs that they go through, he's capable of showing them as these complex characters with flaws, and, you know... Yeah, clearly with flaws and just bad characteristics. But they also have their redeeming qualities, too. But over the course of their adventures, they're, he's going to have particular stories here and there that are very serious. From what I remember, like the Saint of Killers story is yeah. played for pretty serious. But then, at the same time, there's a lot of this over-the-top, ridiculous stuff that's happening, too, uh, over mm-hmm. the course of however many issues he's working on so it's it's this ability to fluctuate back and forth between these two things and i guess the closest thing that i can say is have your cake and eat it right
2: yeah At pretty least much. For him.
1: yeah yeah but i'd also say that in some of his shorter works you definitely see that mix of uh the mix of these two tones as well uh one thing one story that i could think of was he did this mini series called I think All star Section Eight or something like that. Oh yeah. Hitman spinoff. Yeah. So it's it's based on these degenerate superheroes that just have really lame superpowers and
0: But you don't think Dogwelder has a great <laughs> power?
1: Uh I mean it's not the kind of power that's gonna do anything to Darkseid. How do you know? Have they ever fought each other? Uh, I'm confident, just based on his name, that that is not a power that's going to do anything to Darkside.
0: <laughs> Has Darkside ever had a dead a dead dog welded
1: into his face? There's a reason that he hasn't had a dead dog <laughs> welded to his face, because he's never fought Dog Welder. <laughs> uh, fine, I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Dogwelder is undefeated against Darkseid.
1: Yeah, yeah. For all we know, Dogwelder is Darkseid's kryptonite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has the anti-life equation, which is anti-life to everybody in the DC universe. But <laughs> Dogwelder is his anti-life equation. Yo. There we go. There we go. <laughs> you figured it out. <clears throat> yeah. And, like, the leader of the team is basically a wino. Who who just, yeah, he's a superhero who doesn't have any powers, but just spends all day being drunk. And then, yeah, I'm not going to go into all the characters, because I don't don't really remember them off the top of my head. But, yeah, you can tell just from our description of it, the bits and pieces of the description that we're giving you, that it's a pretty silly comic overall. but. I do remember, and, you know, a bit of a spoiler here, but there there was, in the very last issue, of it, a, a bit of heart. And I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but what ends up happening is so much of the story revolves around these heroes trying to find relevance for themselves, despite how irreverent their existence is altogether, and... What ends up happening in the very last issue, I don't really remember it too well, but I do remember my my takeaway from it was something that I did marvel at, which was by the very end of it, you learn that the DC universe exists because their leader – I forget his name, the the drunk, the hobo superhero. Six-pack. Six-Pack has a moment of epiphany where he realizes that the universe, the entirety of the DC universe exists because in his real life, he is a homeless man who has passed out and is in a never-ending state of drunkenness. And if he was ever to sober up, the, the entire DC universe would cease to exist. And what happens at the end of the issue is, he chooses to remain a drunk in order to save the universe, essentially. <laughs> but it it sounds really silly. But the way that they depicted Sixpack in in that final issue, it's really quite pitiable, and it gives him a little bit of nobility in in what he's doing, in spite of the pitiable state that he's in. Because it really it literally just ends with him sleeping in this snowy alley and just passed out but even as he's like murmuring to himself in his drunken state he realizes that he if if he was ever to wake up the entirety of the DC universe would cease to exist (laughs) it's pretty wild yeah it's
0: that's comical
1: yeah but it, it it was something where like I said I felt a sense of It tugged at your heartstrings? It did. It tugged at my heartstrings, and I felt pity for him, but it also made him a hero. Yeah, man. You want to talk about uh, Goran Sutsuka a little bit? I I don't even know if I'm saying it right. If I'm saying it wrong, then I'm sorry. But, you know, at the top of the podcast, I did mention that someone follows us on Instagram, and that's that's Goran Sutsuka, and, you know, we're super appreciative that he does follow us, so uh he was who we were talk- who I was talking about, but yeah yeah
0: Did you- i I like him a lot as an artist man there's a uh, not i don't think I have too many things that he worked on other than uh, why the last man and uh the Wonder Woman run from Azarello and Chang mm. I feel like it's been tough to find. A series where he had an extended run. So Marjorie Finnegan, where you know he did the the entire story. There's something pretty satisfying about that, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I
0: I know that he and Ennis had done another series before this one called a A Walk Through Hell. That was what it was
1: called, right? That was what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. They. Yeah. It sounds like they collaborate with each other you know
2: regularly ish
1: like i don't know if he's like i in terms of comic book writer artist duos I, i i don't know if they're the most prominent duo that i can think of i can i can almost think guarantee that i can think of a lot more but They've worked with each other on enough stuff at this point where it's like, okay, they they clearly have a relationship with each other.
0: Yeah. I think yeah. there's a, a mutual respect there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have found some work of his over the years. He also did a short, brief run on Hellblazer, from what I remember. I do have a trade paper back of that. I I mean, Run is maybe overstating it a little bit, but he did, you know, a story arc.
0: Okay. Yeah, I remember he did a couple issues in the Peter Milligan run.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd
0: have to uh, dig it out to fully remember exactly which story it was. Yeah.
1: And this past year, I did find something in one of our uh, quests, one of our treks out where we went out and searched for comics I found a four-issue miniseries he did called Lady Constantine. Yeah. And like Diggle.
2: Yeah, I Andy believe Diggle. it was Diggle
1: and him, and that was a fun story, from what I remember. Yeah. I I wanted to post that up on the Instagram. I will at some point. Yeah, just uh, you know, stay on the edge of your seat. It's coming, boys and girls. <laughs> Speaking of Hellblazer
0: miniseries, he also did this other one called Chaz the knowledge it was a mini series about uh constantine's uh best friend chaz that one was written by simon oliver i remember finding that like a bunch of years ago before, I, I, it was probably before i even like really knew too much about him because i i think i had only become familiar with Goran suzuka because of why the last man Even though he wasn't the primary artist, he did enough issues of it where his name left an impact on me. And, uh, you know, his art was definitely really good in that comic, too. Yeah. yeah. Then, of course, when the Azarello Chang Wonder Woman came out, he was one of the alternate artists on that run. Yeah, there's definitely um, I feel like there's some aesthetic similarities between his work and Cliff Chang, for sure.
1: I can see it. I can see it.
0: There's a a really clean line that Gorin Suzuka is fond of that just makes his work stand out. Like, he's got a really clean line, and he does a really good job with various perspectives where you can tell, like, all the... Like, when when he's drawing people from... Or drawing scenes from different angles, like, all of the scenery and all of the proportions of the people, they always just look so accurate.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I... I know what you mean when you say that there's there's like a similarity between him and someone like Cliff Chang because maybe Cliff Chang's angles are a little sharper, I guess. But you can definitely see, uh, you can definitely see when you put them side by side that there's different. Elements that they both tend to gravitate towards for sure, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I was actually uh looking at Grand Suzuka's Wikipedia entry and one of the things that's mentioned in it the the link to the to this information is a dead link unfortunately, so i I couldn't uh you know verify and read more but According uh to Wikipedia, among his artistic influences, he cites some of his fellow Croatians, including uh Igor Kordy and Edvin Bukovich. Like there's a couple a few other people there uh whose art I am not too familiar with, but definitely am familiar with Igor Kordy and Edvin Bukovich. Like those guys, I can definitely see um the the similarities cause Especially with uh Bukovic. even though he uh passed away quite some time ago, I definitely remember his work from Human Target by Milligan, which is one of my favorites from Milligan. Like that first four issue miniseries has really clean line artwork too that that does remind me of Suzuka's artwork. Mm. And yeah, he, he did some Bukovic also did some Star Wars comics that have that uh I guess, yeah, very European quality, you know, like not maybe not exactly like Mobius, but I feel like something like Mobius would probably have been influential as well, you know mm-hmm. but there's there's just some quality to it i I can't really I don't have the vocabulary to like fully describe it, it's just that when I look at it, those are the kind of things that that I think of right, right, the other thing about. Garan Suzuka as a storyteller and that really stands out is he's capable of drawing some pretty funny stuff. <laughs> like Yeah. I think the, the comedy in Marjorie Finnegan is pretty underrated. Like it it feels like it's a comic that's just an action-packed romp, but there's actually some pretty funny things in here that yeah. Yeah. Like, he just he's just able to sell those beats with his drawing style and his The way that he um, just paces some of the the beats, it's pretty great.
1: I was going to say that I've seen his work in Why the Last Man and in some of the other comics that you mentioned. And I do feel like even though his style is pretty much the same in Marjorie Finnegan, there's a cartoony quality to the way that he draws some of the things that just adds to the comedy. Yeah, yeah.
0: The first time I saw one of those swans with a boxing glove for her head, it just made me laugh because it was just such yeah. a such a bizarre thing to to picture.
1: Yeah, yeah. And well, I I mean we can get into it later, but I do think he's got good comedic timing too. I like that. That's probably a combination of Ennis and him, but you know it's it. Again, we'll talk about it later when we get to it, but uh, he, he's he got a good grasp of comedic timing.
0: Yeah, definitely. The coloring by Miroslav Merva. I'm not sure if I pronounced his name correctly, so I'm sorry if I messed that up. But the coloring definitely stands out in this comic, too, because it's, it just pops. It's, like, really bright and vibrant. And I think the there's a lot of, like, flat colors being used here. And it... <laughs> That just kind of highlights and accentuates the 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 line art you know like it's it's such a clean look that it makes sense to have coloring that's equally clean, so you don't have things that are just covered up in like murky i don't know what you call it like murky gradients or or murky effects, you know it's just really simple and clean. Coloring that enhances the line art. And that's what you want to see when you have a colorist that complements the artist. Mm. Mm.
1: All right. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about in regards to any of the other creative people?
0: Not exactly,
1: but I, I do want to talk a little
0: bit about AWA since I think this is the first time we've talked about their comics on our podcast. That's a good point. Yeah. They're one of the newer or more recent comic book publishers, AWA stands for artists, writers, and artisans. And it was, it's an American company that's founded. It was founded by Axel Alonso, Bill Jemis, and Jonathan F. Miller. Mm-hmm. Don't know anything about Jonathan F. Miller, but people who have been reading comics for 20 something years will be familiar with Axel Alonso and Bill Jemis. Cause they're, they're big Marvel guys. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like they were founded.
1: Oh, go ahead. I I was just gonna mention like their entire reach at Marvel lasted for a pretty long time, and you know they they had a pretty big thumbprint on the universe in in, in the sense that you know a lot of the movie stuff did did come out of their era. If you if you know where to look, uh, you you'll see their um, their imprint on it. That's all I was gonna say.
0: Mhm. Yeah, Bill Jemus definitely uh, spearheaded Marvel during a kind of turning point in their modern history. Especially uh, with Joe Quesada, you know, making all those changes for the new Marvel era and launching Marvel Knights and the Max line the ultimate line, all those kind of things. Just basically being willing to throw a bunch of crap at the wall to see what would stick. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean that as a compliment, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say,
1: it doesn't sound very complimentary, but... (laughs) (laughs) But if
0: you think about it, a lot of the stuff that he threw at the wall did end up sticking for a good amount of time.
1: Yeah, that era was... We we often talk about it with fondness to this day, to the point where sometimes I wonder if I'm stunted in terms of what I appreciate. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: I do wonder if people who came into comics much later or more recently, or who were into comics like from the eighties or seventies, I wonder if they have as fond memories of that early two thousands period as we do.
1: Yeah. It's it's hard to step outside of yourself and to put yourself in the shoes of, well, younger people and try to imagine based on what their tastes are and, you know, the media they consume, what they like, and to try to see if the things that you liked, which you felt were universally... Or should have been universally acceptable, yeah, acceptable or universally accessible. Mm-hmm. It it's hard to imagine putting yourself in the shoes of someone young, younger who who has this entire different lived experience, and to see from where they are if any of that resonates with them at all. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's just that that era, we were the right age for that era of comics, yeah, all the yeah. Marvel Knight stuff and things like that, the ultimate comics that were coming out in the late 90s and early 2000s. We were the prime age for it cuz We were Yeah. We had we grown were, up in the 90s. Exactly. And then uh yeah, I don't know about you, but I kind of fell out of comics for a little bit and then when I came back into comics, I was picking up new comics uh, new marvel comics and you know it was it just so happened to be from that period of time so yeah you know they were, they were good enough to hook experimental me back
1: in. stuff and they were really classing up the material so you're right it it came around just as we were trying to put stuff the stuff that we liked as kids behind us and as we were trying to find that middle path where we could still enjoy comics but comics that had a sense of sophistication to them, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something that wasn't just as black and white as watch these guys punch the crap out of these other guys. Okay, now I can go to sleep. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I I needed to have high drama inserted into my comics. I needed to have that level of complexity in order for me to Justify the violence, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) Then Axel Alonso, of course, started out at Vertigo in the 90s and was there quite a bit editing a lot of the comics that we ended up becoming pretty appreciative of over the years. Maybe I definitely wasn't reading them as they were coming out because I think I was probably just young and ignorant at the time, but you know. In the early 2000s, after I had gotten back into comics, I did a big dive into Vertigo, and you know things like Preacher, Hellblazer, Unknown Soldier, Hundred Bullets, Human Target. A lot of those books were Axel Alonso books uh, that he edited as well. Before moving on to Marvel in the early 2000s, where he would continue to, you know, just be one of their more prominent editors, and eventually became editor in chief for a little while. One of the things about AWA that is kind of interesting is that a lot of the initial talent that they had creating comics for them, at least in their early beginnings, were people from that era of comics. People who did a lot of like early 2000s Marvel stuff. You had your, you had J. Michael Straczynski. I mean, obviously Garth Ennis right here. Um, Peter Milligan, Reginald Hudlin did some stuff, I think. Yeah, it was just interesting to think that, like, the people who were so involved at Marvel back then would become, like, kind of the cornerstones of their, of this new company's publishing initiative. Like, Mike Diodato, man, he, he drew a bunch of their comics. I think mm. I think he still draws a bunch of their comics, but he did a ton of things over at marvel in the
1: 2000s yeah i don't know i feel like he's someone who still gets a fair amount of work at marvel maybe it's been a while since i've really seen anything of his at marvel i I don't really remember but he was doing stuff for quite a long time you know yeah a really long time well past his contemporaries like you know, I've seen other people come and go for whatever reason. Um, you know, guys like Jim Chung or Steve McNiven or something. Like you know, they had their peak eras for sure, but then when when whatever happened happened, they just kind of their their amount of output just suddenly disappeared altogether. Whereas with Mike Diada Jr., it always felt like he was. Always doing something.
0: Yeah, he was constantly doing interiors, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Whereas I, I feel like with someone like Steve McNiven or McNiven, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name either. Yeah. But I felt like after a certain amount of time, he just ended up doing mainly covers or something. Like, I can't think of the last time I really saw too many of his interiors. The last thing I can think of might have been something like Nemesis or Mark Miller. I mean, maybe yeah. there's something I'm forgetting, but yeah, I can't recall. Jim Chung, at least he was drawing some Justice League or something uh, a little true. while ago. That's true. Mike Diodato might just be prolific because he he's fast, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And his art has kind of evolved over the years, because when I remember him from the 90s, he was drawing in that very
1: 90s style. I think he did Thor God Engine by Ellis, right? That's yeah, he, the one thing I remember for him from. He did that.
0: He drew a bunch of Wonder Woman comics in the 90s, too. The okay. Artemis stuff.
1: Okay. I I can kind of imagine it. It's that era where Wonder Woman had, like... A jacket. A, a jacket, leather jacket, right? yeah, Yeah. <laughs> and she had <laughs> the, the bike shorts. She had the bike shorts, I think.
0: <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was drawing that, like, a bad girl comic. Like, Lady Death or She yeah. or something.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: And then over the years, he just ended up becoming more and more photorealistic. Yeah. Or, uh, I don't know if you. Yeah, I guess photorealistic, because he uses a lot of reference in his work now. Like, you can tell that a lot of the backgrounds, a lot of the likenesses of his characters. So... But I've seen him do quite a few AWA books. AWA is interesting, because they launched their titles right around the time that COVID started. So like right around the time that the lockdowns began was when they first started releasing their new comics. But here we are in 2023. And as far as I can tell, they're still publishing comics, you know, they haven't, it doesn't seem like they've suffered hard times, but I don't really know for sure. Hopefully they, they continue to, do stuff man because they have done some pretty good comics
1: wasn't there some news recently about them like not so great news Mm -hmm. i don't know i feel like there's a lot of bad comics news coming out so maybe i'm just getting things are you thinking of uh aftershock comics or i'm thinking of aftershock that's what i was thinking of not awa okay yeah yeah
0: like they are comic book publishers that are relatively recent yeah and they both start with A, but AfterShock yeah. I think declared Chapter Eleven a few months ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget. Is AWA did they do Not All Robots by Mark Russell? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Theodato so, drew that one too. Oh, it's so weird because I don't associate his I associate art with satire with, at all. Yeah. yeah. Or commentary, or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's the guy that you associate with, you know, sexy chicks and action, and mm-hmm. that's not the kind of, I, like, although I haven't read it, but just based on the things you've told me, it doesn't really feel like it's a action sort of book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have heard people discuss AWA as kind of this throwback because they have a lot of talent from that early 2000s period. It's like... Yeah, I don't know if that's the kind of thing that appeals to the modern reader as much as it might
1: appeal to you and me. It feels like a bit of a backhanded compliment, but... I don't don't even... uh, Go ahead, go ahead.
0: No, what were you going to (laughs) say? Yeah, I was going to say I don't even know if it's a compliment. (laughs) Oh, ouch. (laughs) I mean, well, here's the thing. I feel like when I've heard people say that, they meant it in a disparaging way. (laughs) Ouch. That hurts. Because it's, you know, in in the year 2023, who really wants to read a J. Michael Straczynski comic? Yeah. I mean, he's he's just not, I mean, I don't mean anything personal against him, it's just that he's not as big of a name as he was back then, you know, when he was writing Amazing Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just... Yeah, you're right. Sitting where we are, uh at our age and looking back at that it sounds like a big deal to us but again if i was to put myself in the shoes of you know some some teenager or a 20 something year old who's coming into comics now uh, i don't know that that stuff has any pull with them whatsoever
0: like they're not like peter milligan is my favorite writer and they're not gonna be impressed from a new peter milligan comic because they won't know who he is you know
1: yeah yeah and you know Comics have been around for a long such a long time that that entire the entire population of comics creators is just so massive, unless you really commit yourself to it and study at the feet of it, you're there's gonna be a lot of people that you just don't know. And with a lot of people who are getting into comics, a lot of the times it's just who's hot now? Who do you know now? and and their contemporaries. So, yeah. I was going to say that it sucks because a lot of the guys that we were reading in in that early 2000 era, they've a lot of them we we've talked about this on the podcast, but a lot of them have just kind of done their service and they've just kind of blended back into the background and you know, occasionally you have some people who do some things here and there, but to see them all go to like AWA and have the second chance, I mean, it's, it feels good, but I mean, it feels good to me as someone who's a fan of their work, but I guess the thing is, it just makes me wonder, it makes me feel like there's always something in the back of my my mind, in the back of my head, this itching little, scratching little voice that's, that just wonders, is this really as popular as I hope it is. (laughs) And I don't know that I can confidently say that this is like an indicator that they're doing great or well, but, but Garth Ennis is like pretty much maybe not peak right now, but he's, he's riding pretty high right now. And yeah,
0: I I would assume that he's doing pretty well because of the
1: shows that have been based on his work. Exactly. Exactly. And I was going to mention at the end of the episode, but I guess I'll I'll talk about it now. Marjorie Finnegan, there was some news that they were going to make a movie out of it, but yeah. uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt because anything until we see an actual movie, it it it, it anything can happen.
0: Yeah, it's still in development as far yeah. as I know, and I, I think the announcement was fairly recent too. So yeah, you know, you can't really expect too much news. Yeah. Too I googled quickly.
1: it. I googled it and it was uh 2022, I think. So Yeah, like you said, fairly recently I I'm happy that Ennis gets to do this and hopefully it does well enough that he gets paid for it, paid well. And same goes for Goran Sutska. I I you know, I'm I'm happy for their success and I hope they continue to do well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, shall we talk about the book properly? Shall we talk about Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal?
1: Yeah, let's do it. All right. Do you mind going into the synopses? I have the book
0: in my hands. I will read the back cover blurb Time is on her side. She's a temporal criminal. What more do you need to know? Oh, all right then. All Marge wants to do is race up and down the time lanes, stealing every shiny, gleamy, pretty sparkly she can lay her hands on. But her larcenous trail from the Big Bang to the 95th Reich has drawn the beady (laughs) eye of the temporal PD, whose number one deputy marshal is now hard on our heroine's tail. And, taking things extremely personally... Worse still, Marge's worthless creep of an ex and his even scummier partner have seen an angle of their own in all this and now intend to use her time tech to change history for their own benefit. Marge's only ally? A guy called Tim. And he's just ahead. I mean, <laughs> come on. What use is just ahead? <laughs> so that is the back cover synopsis of marjorie finnegan temporal criminal i think when we were talking about garth ennis a few minutes ago we talked about some of the styles of writing he tends to favor or his tones this book i would say is more of a romp it's not something that will out preacher preacher in terms of how gross it can be mm-hmm. you know it's not i don't think it's necessarily on the level of the boys in terms of how grotesque or how outrageous it can shock you or titillate you or anything like that. Yeah. But it's also not exactly one of his more serious works either. This is... It's got comedy. It's got action adventure. and adventure. Yeah. It's got some pretty silly stuff. It's got some... It does have some gross stuff, but there's also stuff in it where it its it's... On the whole, I would say it's more on the lighthearted side even though yeah. it's a story that has a lot of you know pain and killing and shooting and death and stuff like that it's it's still something where it's more of a romp than anything else i would say that it's more uh, meant to entertain you than to really make you you know ponder the complexities of life or something like that exactly
1: i was going to say that if a popcorn flick could be a comic book, that's what this would be. It's it's a popcorn comic, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what the term would be, but you know, it's just meant to be entertaining, I guess, is the primary goal of it. Mhm. Yeah. Well, so
0: Albert, were yeah. you entertained?
1: I think I, yeah, I I'd say so. It's it's like you were saying it's not something that is aspiring to be sophisticated or high-minded it's really just an adventure story and that back cover blurb that you were describing I think it accurately sums up the tone that the book is trying to establish for itself which is this young girl is just trying to have a good time and we're just following her on her adventures and I I think that's that's sometimes enough, you know? Um mm-hmm. I I think comics comics exist on a spectrum and there's one there's a flavor for every state of emotion that you can be in. And you know, not everything has to be not everything has to be Moby Dick. Not everything has to be Watchmen. Sometimes it's okay to just have something that is just you know entertaining. And yeah something I think that'll make you laugh exactly and I think this was an appropriate it was a, yeah it was it it appropriately did its job as something that made me chuckle out loud from time to time I there were there are some scenes that I I can still think of that are pretty funny
0: Yeah man You want to talk a little bit or say anything in more detail regarding the story or the plot or the characters or anything?
1: Sure. I guess this is the moment where we will, where we engage in spoilers. So, you know, if, I don't think this is the kind of book where spoilers are super important to it, but you know, if it matters to you as a listener, this is the part where we're just going to go full hog and, you know, just talk about it with reckless abandon in terms of, any spoilers that there might be yeah so it's story of marjorie finnegan who goes out on this adventure and while she's out there she they they really put all of the the time travel rules they, they minimize all of the time traveling tropes that you're accustomed to because she has this device that allows it so if she goes out there and she messes something up it replaces you with an alternate version of you or, or it it rewrites time in a way that you will be erased in an alternate fashion, right? So if she goes in there and she kills you, this device will rework history so that it made it look like you fell down the stairs or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so – Right off the bat, we get rid of that notion that, oh, okay, uh, this is going to be a thing where, you know, she's going to have to rewrite time or, you know, do a Terminator 2 or whatever, right? And really early on, what we establish is she's kind of just going out here just doing pranks, you know, like stealing things that people won't notice being stolen or just meeting people, just... Just having a laugh. And eventually what ends up happening is the authorities, these temporal authorities that exist, we find out that her sister is actually the one who is not – her sister is part of this authority, these, these time cops, I guess. And she is, because of her history with Marjorie. Understandably, she feels a responsibility towards all of the shenanigans that she gets into. And as a result, she feels the need to work extra hard to prove herself to these authorities that she works for, right? Mm-hmm. And and what ends up happening is the first part of the, – the earlier part of the book is about her chasing down her sister. And eventually she does capture her, but not before – Marjorie realizes that there's actually a plot in play. And the plot is that her ex-husband and – what's what's that guy's name? The, the ultimate bastard, I guess. <sighs> the guy that he works the with. The Lord of Evil? Yeah, uh, well, okay. He literally goes by the name The Lord of Evil. And the <laughs> thing about him is he's so smart and so ingenious that he – as a fetus, was already self-aware. That's how smart he was, and <laughs> he basically learns very early on that he just cares so little for people and for humanity that it all almost seems like a game to him. And he just wants to—he's the Lord of Evil. Like his whole thing is, he just wants to mess with things for the sake of messing with things, you know. Mm-hmm. So the plot. He's evil. She, yeah, he's evil. So the plot that she uncovers is that he intends to it's it's a two-part plot. First, he intends to go back in time and change the Ten Commandments so that the well, okay, that's that's a short version of it. The he just he has this thing called the Hippocrypha, which is basically all of the edited out stuff that's all the stuff that they have edited out of religious texts that point to, like, bad things that people have done in, in these texts, right? So what he instead to, intends to do is he intends to reinsert that back into these texts so that society changes and time—you know, because it's time travel—society changes, and once the moral fabric of society has changed, he can go back in time and reinsert himself to the very first— religious experience that cavemen had and basically make himself this universal deity that ex- that exists throughout all time. I, I don't know if that's something that I'm communicating accurately to those of you who are listening, if that makes sense at all, but it's a pretty ridiculous idea, <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's It's pretty ridiculous. It's definitely... A trademark garth ennis concept yeah i think if you read a lot of garth ennis comics you'll definitely come to recognize that he's a pretty staunch atheist and pretty uh proud of it and definitely willing to tell stories that basically like contain diatribes against any kind of organized religion yeah Yeah, i'd definitely say that christianity and and Catholicism are like his two biggest punching bags, but I think uh, he turns his attention to to like religion in general, you know just as like a any any belief system that requires some kind of faith in a divine power like yeah that like I think it it applies equally to to those as well, especially in this comic because. You definitely see scenes. There's a scene where uh, the Lord of Evil is talking to Stan, the ex husband of Marjorie, who also happens to look like a literal horned devil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the Lord of Evil just looks like a, a regular Dude. human. Yeah. He looks slob. like a slob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got kind of unkempt hair, long sideburns, not fully clean shaven, and a bit of a pot belly.
1: I gotta ask you something. Did you read the letter at the end of the book, or or the brief like essay, I guess that Garth Ennis wrote at the end of the book, where he kind of talks about mm-hmm. this, you know, the thought process that went into his writing? Yeah, I did. There's this one part where he talks about the the Lord of Evil and Stan, and he talks about how he wants to play it against type, so he makes Stan the the henchman. He makes him just look. He makes him look like the devil, whereas he makes the actual mastermind of it all just look like he makes that guy look like what the henchman would look like. He he yeah. reverses their roles. So I thought that was kind of a funny idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, Yeah, I was saying that I was going to say that there's a scene in the story when the Lord of Evil and Stan are talking with each other and... The Lord of Evil is explaining his plan with the Hippocrypha and how he wants to basically alter the very nature of faith and morality by going back throughout time and changing these religious texts. There's a scene where he kind of imagines the final outcome of that. And then you see a splash page of the iconic images of various world religions from you know things like the last supper uh the virgin mary buddha the hindu gods there's even a poster of uh l ron hubbard's scientology but all the all of the uh, icons are replaced with the evil the lord of evils face so you have like the virgin mary with the face of the lord of evil
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i didn't really get into the science of it too much because Sometimes the technicality or the technical aspects of it are, if you stop and think about about it too much, it it tends to it, it could take you out of it. So I think it was just easier for me to think of it as he's just got a machine that's gonna unanimously inject him into all these moments simultaneously, you know, and 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 once he comes back to his present state in time, he will come back to a universe where he was in all these big religious moments and now he is the human deity that he wanted to be, mm-hmm. right? Again, mm-hmm. I didn't think about the science of it too much, but I, I was just like, okay, if that's the story he wants to tell, that's the story he wants to tell.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know you also have your thing Against time travel stories in general, so I was curious to see how you uh how you took this story
1: i think I think the irreverence helps it because again, because I don't generally have too much respect for time travel as a as a concept because it's already a uphill climb for it because this work doesn't take it seriously, I can just kind of not take it seriously too, you know? Because I can just kind of look at it as okay, this is just where this is just what I have to accept in order for him to tell whatever story that he's trying to tell, make whatever point he's trying to make. So the time travelness of it isn't something that I have to pay attention to at all. Really. You know? Yeah.
0: So like the the fact that you don't like time travel and the fact that this story is kind of this irreverent take on... It's not taking time travel too seriously, is what I'm trying to say. That makes it a little bit more palatable to you? I think so.
1: It, mm-hmm. It's like I said, because it doesn't take it seriously, I don't have to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, So I'm fine with that. Okay, Certainly. okay. Yeah. Yeah. But... Yeah, as I was saying. So, yeah, that that's basically the master plan and it's it's a pretty wild idea. What what ends up happening is Marjorie ends up going to temporal jail, but while she's there, she she has this knowledge of this greater plot that's going to take place and what ends up happening is her sister, the the straight lace, you know, prototypical good cop, the one that went out of her way to track her very own sister down and to put her in jail because that's how committed she is to, you know, maintaining time law or whatever, right? (laughs) Or whatever. She's so committed to it that she's willing to bring in her very own sister. That's how how much of a good cop she is. But when she finds out about the plot, she decides she's got to go in there and she's going to break her sister out because – who else can she count on, to to break the rules when she needs them to break the rules? Her own right. sister. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, of course, they need the help of Tim, the disembodied head, to help them. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I don't know. I I think there are, in spite of the fact that you have a bunch of these weird weird moments or gross out moments. So you know when she's in the temporal prison there's definitely some edgy stuff going on in there cuz you know you can't have a prison story without you know sexual violence <laughs> or the threat of sexual violence or or stuff like that right the kind of stuff that you ex- you would expect they confront uh you know Marjorie Finnegan because she's because she's a character this 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 uh, troublemaker, she's made more than her fair share of enemies. So while she's in there, you know the opposing gang members or or whatever people that have a gripe against her decide this is their chance to try to kill her. And what at ends up happening? Turns out she's got friends in there too. Uh, a talking or, or not talking, a sentient velociraptor who just utterly like tears these guys up and just turns them into chunks of meat. Yeah. You know you have stuff like that uh you have them there's this one moment where marjorie Marjorie is at a loss for what to do, so what does she decide to do? She goes to the very end of time to visit the last man and she builds this up as he's the very last person on earth he's gonna know everything that's ever happened in history like this is this is a a reverent reverent moment for us because this is gonna be someone wise this is someone who's seen it all and they go and see him and he's basically just a morbidly obese misogynist (laughs) misogynist (laughs) who's just there to (laughs) gorge himself on his appetites while the while the world comes to end i i don't know that's wild it kind of does say something about (laughs) i guess how he looks at people like this idea that At the very end of time, we kind of assume that there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a sense of respect and solemnity to, to, to being this last person on Earth. And when you pull back the curtain only to find out that it's the most extreme version of what you would consider, like, a prototypical slobbingly American or something like that.
2: Yeah.
1: It it does kind of point to, to, like, I don't know if that's sincerely what he thinks about people, but.
0: I'm sure it's what he thinks about some people.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Actually, speaking of the two examples you just shared, those are some Brian K. Vaughn references, I think. With, yeah. Uh, Velociraptor named Dinah here in in this story. you know, There's just something about the way that she was drawn and the way that she acted with intelligence that totally reminds us of Old Lace from Runaways. Yeah. And then the Last Man story. I mean, that's clearly a reference to Why the Last Man. Heck, that issue is actually titled Why the Last Man, except it's instead of just the letter Y, it's the word... W-H-Y.
1: Yeah. I remember seeing that, and it was something that struck me because it was such an obvious Why the Last Man reference, and because Goran Sutzka had worked on Why the Last Man, it, it put me on alert because between that and Dinah, because those two are so connected, those two story elements are so connected to Brian K. Vaughn, it put me on alert and in this position where as I was reading the book, I was just wondering if they had done that on purpose to, to you know, kind of do a wink and a nod to, to Brian K. Vaughn. So it put me in this position where I was just actively looking to see if there were more Brian K. Vaughn references throughout the book that I just wasn't seeing. So there was that. Um I do remember when I got to the issue entitled Why the Last Man. I think I was bracing myself as I was reading it because I wondered if when they finally revealed who the last man was, if it was going to be an ersatz version of Yorick Brown, the main character from Why the Last Man, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that would have been a funny easter egg
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah the i do know that uh or i'm pretty sure that garth ennis and bkv are pals also because there was that one issue of ex machina where i don't know if you remember it but it's the one where brian k vaughn himself is in the comic and he's trying to create a comic about the great machine but then at the end of the story, you just find out that they decided not to use Brian K. Vaughn and Tony Harris. They decided to use Garth Ennis and Jim Lee. <laughs> there's that one page in Ex Machina where the art is by Jim Lee and the captions are written by Garth Ennis.
1: Uh, and now that I think about it, and why The Last Man, wasn't there like a reference to to Preacher? in Because there's this one thing in preacher where i don't remember it too specifically but i remember there was a lighter like a john wayne lighter that he he had
2: oh okay
1: and i feel like that was something that that they referenced in why the last man i'd have to go back and double check but yeah
0: i'll have to keep an eye out for that next time i reread why
1: i i could be totally totally wrong i've read so many comics at this point like things are just kind of mixing and meshing. So I, I could be absolutely wrong on that, remembering it wrong.
0: But yeah. I do want to highlight issue four since we have just been talking about Dinah, the Velociraptor. But the artwork in this issue in particular really tickled me. There's just something pretty funny about the way Goren Suzuka drew the dinosaur. Yeah. Like like the first time we see her, she's in the shower with every with all the other women uh pr- protecting Marjorie from getting shanked by these other women who are out to get her and the thing that makes it funny to me is that when we first see Dinah, she just looks like a regular velociraptor you know that you'd see from like Jurassic Park or whatever, except that one of her eyes is like a cyborg guy, and then she's got this it's like a cyborg eye patch yeah, like a cyborg <laughs> eye patch and she has a metal helm helmet thing that looks like it's just built into her head with a tiny satellite dish protruding out of it yeah yeah so it's like just the right amount of high absurdity (laughs) yeah but it still looks like pretty silly yeah but then after that scene after the shower scene the next time we see her there uh dinah is in the cell with marjorie and now she's wearing a prison jumpsuit. <laughs> so like it didn't even occur to me that she was naked <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> just, like I it's... just thought, oh, it's a dinosaur. <laughs> and then I realized, oh wait, that was a naked dinosaur, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I will like, say they're just doing her she's just doing her nails, like her her dinosaur claws. It's it's like just painting her nails or something. It's it's pretty funny, and and the way that the way that the dinosaur is sitting, the way that they hold hands while they're talking, it's just it's just drawn in this really funny way. And then you get these little um flashback images, right, with from them uh over the years as they've had other uh activities together. And like there's a picture of Marjorie's wedding to Stan, and you can see in the background Dinah is there wearing a pretty dress. <laughs> like a dinosaur wearing a dress but she just looks unhappy to be there
1: (laughs) and that resonated with me because i'm never happy to be (laughs) at and then you get this other
0: flashback panel where i guess they went back in time to the age of pirates so dinah's dressed up like a pirate shooting a some kind of old school pistol it's just so absurd but It made me laugh, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I will say that Dinah is kind of endearing, actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that I think that might have been my favorite issue. It was just the one that halt had all the the best jokes, man.
1: Yeah. Like another
0: one was when they dig through the prison. Uh huh. And they're about to escape, right? And and Marjorie is Talking to Dinah, trying to convince her to to go with her. And in the background, or actually in this panel, it, it it's actually in the foreground. There's a a big nest with one of those uh, birds, punching bag those, swans. Yeah, the punching, punching bag swans. Yeah, punching, punching, gloves punching glove swans. swans. And there's an adult one that's looking down at three of the baby ones. And just the the way that their heads are looking at each other, like there's some personality there. But it's just again such a bizarre image. That yeah.
1: Yeah, it's another thing that just made me chuckle. I wanted to talk about that, actually, because I don't have it in front of me, but I don't really remember it too well. Because basically what, what's what's happening at this point is her sister catches up with her and she tells her she's going to break her out of there. So Marjorie is is just so thankful for this friend that she has inside. And she goes – she just automatically assumes that Dinah is going to come with her and they're going to have these adventures together. Mm -hmm. But Dinah – and the other thing about Dinah is she doesn't actually talk. She just like, you know, growls and grunts or whatever. But Marjorie –
0: She just says the word onk.
1: Yeah, yeah. And – but Marjorie has these full-on conversations with her. They like understand Like she understands her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But – yeah, she, she she's talking to Dinah, and she's t- basically saying, like, of course, you're going to come with me. When we're just going to have good times. And from what I remember, Dinah says, or what Marjorie says that Dinah says is that, well, she's kind of too old for this, and she wants to, like, do right by it, or something to that effect, right? Uh, Something along the lines of, I think I want to just go back and, like, do my time. So... At that moment, Marjorie and Harry end up going off because they, they've got to stop this plot. And right at the very end of the scene, Dinah's head pops back out and she looks and they're gone. And that's just kind of how it ends, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious how you read that because I was like, wait, did she just end up wanting to go with them? Like, did she change her mind or something?
0: The way I interpreted it was that the teleportation flash probably drew Dinah's attention, and that's why she stuck her head out again. Because uh-huh. uh-huh. when she st- sticks out her head the first time, she's looking you know, straight at the reader, and there's a question mark word balloon coming out of her to indicate that she's wondering what's happening. And then you have these series of panels where she looks in each direction and looks kind of worried and then at the end it just zooms out and she's just like onk again yeah. making her trademark growl yeah uh looking kind of worried so I, the way i interpreted that scene was that she wasn't sure what just happened to her friend to make her uh-huh. disappear so quickly like that and there was nothing she could do about it yeah 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 i don't think she necessarily regretted the decision yeah. yeah okay
1: yeah i I do think even though the book is irreverent, like this it's 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 not the most disturbing Garth Annis book I've ever read. And
0: and it's that's not fine. crossed.
1: It's not crossed, it's not trying to be crossed. It it definitely has a few moments that are kind of icky or whatever, but for the most part I did have fun with some of the relationships. Uh, So Dino was an example of one. Another one is Harry and Marjorie's relationship. By the way, side side note, as I was reading this, I don't know why, like, Marjorie is a pretty unique name, and I just kept, in my mind, expecting to read it as Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know (laughs) why. (laughs) It was just weird. Because every time Every time I read Marjorie, I in my mind I always finished saying it by saying Taylor Greene. It always just that part always just naturally would pop up at the end of it. It was really weird. That's the that's the most famous Marjorie that you know. That so. I know. <laughs> exactly. So That's uh <laughs> So I couldn't help but like read it as Marjorie Taylor Greene almost every time instead of Marjorie Finnegan.
0: (laughs) Man. It's it's pretty weird. (laughs) That that is uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, I do think that Marjorie and her sister Harry have a pretty interesting relationship too because it starts out pretty contentious and, you know, they... You get the sense that they, that Harry definitely is embittered towards her. There's, there's this one understandably or, so. Understandably so, exactly. There's this, uh, part early on in the story where it shows them as kids, and Marjorie's just again, got this devil may care attitude and just messing around, and she's playing with a crossbow and she hits Harry in the eye with the crossbow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not laughing. <laughs> 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 the The panel
0: itself is pretty funny.
1: Yeah, it's really cartoony because she's just running off and like, it almost feels like she's going, mom, <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, but, I mean, that's exactly what it is. She's, yeah. Uh, Harry has the arrow sticking out of her eye and she's, you know, crying and you see this, uh, these tears and stuff flying out of her direction. And then she's pointing at, at uh, kid Marjorie and Marjorie is just like,
1: it wasn't me. <laughs> Yeah, she's, like, hiding the crossbow behind her back, too, from what I remember. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. like... (laughs) Uh, There's just all these scenes of Marjorie doing awful stuff to her sister when they were kids. Like, there's a picture of... Or there's a a scene where she's thinking about the things that they were up to when they were kids. And you see that she definitely uh, got a bunch of uh, bees to chase after her sister by throwing a bunch of honey on her face yeah on her birthday she offered her sister a slice of cake but it was on top of a mouse trap. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another scene where marjorie put her sister her entire sister inside the toilet while she sat down and read a comic or something
1: right right it's it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about in smile where uh well, where Reyna was telling the story about how her friends would just play these pranks on her. But in Smile, it, it, it was obvious that these pranks were having a toll. But the difference here is Garth Ennis is using his signature like dark humor to play it up for jokes. Yeah. So it's it's definitely played for comical effect here. That isn't to say that it's ever right to hit anyone in the face with a crossbow. But But in this instance, I can have a laugh about it.
0: There's another flashback where when they were kids, they climbed up a tree and then Marjorie told her sister, hey, I believe you can fly. (laughs) And then it cuts to a scene where Harriet is completely wrapped up in bandages and traction in the hospital while Marjorie just sits casually at the edge of her bed, eating grapes,
1: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, even though they have this contentious relationship and and you know Harry is definitely the one who's trying to be the good sister, the responsible one it's there's a part of the story where beneath the surface, it is about their relationship to one another. Uh, her breaking her out of jail really becomes this story where these two characters kind of go on this road trip road trip slash adventure with one another and maybe they don't go so far as to reconcile with one another and make peace well no no you know what I take that back I would say by the end of it in their in their gruff crass way they do kind of reconcile with one another you yeah, know like I agree maybe they're not. Maybe it's not like hippie lovey-dovey stuff, but
0: they're probably not going to record a weekly podcast with each other.
1: Yeah, but they're—I think they're more on the same page than they've ever been, you know. And mm-hmm. there is an element of that that I did—I did find resonant, you know. Just watching these two characters who are naturally at odds with each other. Just through shared experience, becoming the sisters that they never really got to be, you know. And maybe that's me like prettying it up more than it it is. But for me, that was something that was resonant.
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty big theme throughout the story. Yeah. So, well, it's not only a comic about sisters, but I feel like it's a pretty good comic about women as well. Like, something that I think says something against, like, your typical, I guess, masculine ideals or just the toxicity of masculine ideals. Because it's up to these women to save the time stream or, you know, or I guess you could even say to save morality as we know it. Yeah, yeah. Because the the men in this story are pretty much the villains. Even the last man, you know, he's just this useless... <laughs> he's utterly useless. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just a useless misogynist. And they end up, you know, taking their guns and blowing him apart when... You know, when after they meet him for a few... You know, just like a minute or something. <laughs> like That's enough to convince him that he should just die.
1: That was... <laughs> Again, that's another like dark dark humor sort of moment, but after this entire build-up of he is the last man on earth, can you imagine all the things that he's seen he's seen, all the knowledge that he's accumulated? And then they come and see him and he's just this morbidly obese dude and the, and like he's just struggling to talk and they're they're talking with him <laughs> and he like I said, he's struggling to talk, and just as they're like waiting with bated breath to see what he's gonna say, he finally belches it out and he just goes, Bring me beer bitches. <laughs> 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 he says something like that, but it's yeah I mean it's obviously gross, and there's definitely like a statement that could be read into it, but It's such a ridiculous scene, too. And then for their response directly after that, like, you don't really see what's happening, but it just shows the two of them standing there with machine guns, and then they just blast them into paste. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, So over the top. (laughs) Yeah. Comical. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, well I guess we'll we'll we can just get to the end of it too, because we're you know so what ends up happening is as they're ramping up the machine that's going to insert the master of evil into all these the Lord of evil. The Lord of evil into all, all these keystone religious moments, what ends up happening is Marjorie act- ends up falling into the machine by accident and she ends up taking his place. Yeah, and she they end up
0: struggling, and he he throws her, but he accidentally throws her into the machine.
1: Yeah, and what what you end up seeing at the end is Harry is doing, I think she's doing like journal entry, or she's talking about it in uh, mm-hmm. you know, like in a narration blog. or a yeah. blog or something, and she talks about how her sister has disappeared and how she's essentially taken up her place in this in her sanctum and suddenly i don't know for for a second it felt like her sister like marjorie was gone forever i don't know if that's what you were thinking but i i i got the impression that that was where it was going to end but then uh, eventually marjorie shows up again and she's drifted through time she has been the buddha she has been uh at the last supper she's been at all these moments and She's worshipped by the world over. And she comes back to her sanctum. And she just... It's kind of a corny sitcom moment. But she's like back and she hated every moment of it. She can't go anywhere without having a moment's peace to herself. Because Mm -hmm. she's essentially the most famous person in all of history. So it ends on this note where... She's just like, I just want to come back inside and, like, you know, try to find some semblance of peace. And her sister just won't let her in. And it's, like I said, a little corny because she's just, like, saying, I might let you in. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But there's still something kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess touching about that.
0: Yeah, it's an improvement from trying to lock her up in prison.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: Actually, that ending scene has a an amusing joke too because Harriet is in the house with Tim and Tim has this whole setup thing where he can actually, even though he's just a head, he has a machine that can hold a book and turn pages for him. And you can see that the book he's reading is called Marge is not great by Christopher Hitchens. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So yeah. for those of you who are the uninitiated, Christopher Hitchens was a pretty, pretty prominent atheist, and he wrote a book called God is not great. That's like one of his most well-known works. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, speaking of jokes, did you? <laughs> Did you see the scene where they had the Ten Commandments and the Lord of Evil was thinking of rewriting the Ten Commandments?
0: Yeah, that's right. I can't remember what he was going to rewrite them to,
1: but I I do remember what you're talking about. Okay, because it showed him redoing the Ten Commandments, and one of them was started from the bottom, now I'm here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Drake. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping that you'd see that. I was like, come on, man. Yeah, I did. I did see it.
0: I, I forgot it until you just reminded me, though.
1: <laughs> I saw that, and I was cracking up.
0: <laughs> yeah, that did make me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: oh, man. Ridiculous. This, it's, again, like, I don't necessarily put all the high-minded stuff on, at the forefront of this book, but there are definitely bits and pieces that make me chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> Started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> there was a... I forget what scene there was. There was this other scene that made me laugh where I think it was Harry, and I forget who she comes up against, but she's you know, she got all these super futuristic weapons, and at one point, I think she was... I think this was when she goes to the past and she goes to the Viking era, and basically there's somebody who's selling... Weapons to these villagers so that they can shoot all the Vikings. Uh huh. And what ends up happening is, I mean, that's that. It's definitely a black comedy scene because at one point one of the Viking runs up on shore on shore and the villagers, who you know, you're expecting to get just utterly annihilated by these Vikings. They just, like, mow all these guys down. And then the last remaining Viking, he's, like, missing a foot. But he's still, you know, he's still trying to be a ferocious warrior. He's still trying to come get him. And then they just hit him with this giant cannon that basically blows away his torso. And all that's left are arms and legs and a head, like, in air. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's just so cartoony. And then I think the other scene is Harriet shows up and she... She's, You know, this is an infraction, a time infraction, because you're giving villagers future weapons, so she needs to take all that back, and she needs to make sure that the time stream is maintained. And one guy tries to run up on her, and she pulls out this shotgun, and it just, like, fills the dude full of holes, and he's just, like, tiny Swiss cheese—he's just a piece of Swiss cheese yeah, with all these yeah. little holes in him. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a pretty hilarious— drawing
0: it, i think it's more like a some kind of machine gun because of uh-huh. all the bullets that are just flying out yeah and yeah yeah she like there are bits of him that are left fully intact so his head and his hand uh and one of and some of his toes are left intact but the rest of his body is just swiss cheese like
1: red yeah. swiss <laughs> cheese. like and the holes are so perfect too they're so perfect it's yeah. like it's it's not gory at all, like, the way that we describe it. You would think that there'd just be, like, a bunch of viscera and goo and intestines or whatever. But it's all just so clean that it's <laughs> hilarious. <Yeah. laughs> and, like, speaking of, you know, characters that have kind of... That, that are charming, there's also Tim. He's someone who's got a bit of an arc in... In the series as well he mm-hmm. is a guy who they they tease that he has some sort of relationship with our Mar- marjorie but they don't really let you know what it is uh he's essentially a living computer that she uses to help her travel through time kind of the uh i guess i guess a cpu or something like that right Mm-hmm. But they tease at the idea that he is someone who might have a bit of a crush on Marjorie. And she even says that at one point she knew him when he had a whole body and she thought he was a good looking guy. And the whole time, you know, it's not a good life to, li- to live where you're just a head in a jar, essentially. <laughs> the whole time. He puts up it feels like he puts up with Marjorie because because the promise that she's going to restore his body someday, right? And and it feels like he puts up with her brash personality because he's got nowhere else to go and because she might restore his body. But then eventually his brain goes through a lot over the course of their adventure. And at one point, his brain reboots. And because he has to reboot from scratch, he's collecting and going through all of his memories. And eventually, he has these memories that he has kept hidden from Marjorie. But because of the reboot process, he can't help but tell her everything. And we go back to the scene to the night where they first met. And what ends up happening is he goes to a bar and he sees her in this bar and he's enamored by her and he even goes and buys her a drink, but this other suave douche comes in and takes credit for buying her the drink. And he's just seething with anger watching this this douchebag talk to her, right? And that's something that that was a scene that hit me in the heart muscle a little bit. I was just like, mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm. man, you That's know, happened I, to you, hasn't it? It hasn't happened to me, but you know, it feels Close enough. It, it doesn't feel good watching a guy like pine over someone only to watch her end up with somebody else. It's especially it's not a, a great douche. Feeling. Especially a douche, exactly. So what ends up happening is he ends up going to the bathroom, and the guy goes. Uh, enters the bathroom around the same time, and this dude's all gloating because he's like, Hey, I saw you buy her the drink. I thought that was my chance to swoop in and like charm her. And she's just been laughing and giggling with me this whole time, blah, blah, blah. And he gets so mad. Tim gets so mad that there's a drug addict in there with a needle sticking out of his wiener, and he <laughs> grabs it and he sticks the dude in the eye. <laughs> in the neck. Oh, in the neck. In the yeah. neck. And yeah. I think she said that he gave him hepatitis or something <laughs>
0: <laughs> at the very at,
1: least at the very least. <laughs> but the thing is when he comes out of the the bathroom, he thinks this is his chance to go like, tell her, Hey, it wasn't the douche. I bought you the drink. I wanted to talk to you. But he saw that she already left and he follows her outside to try to go, you know, catch her because he's like really into her. And just as he's crossing the street, and yelling at her to tell her, it was me, I'm the one that bought you the drink. Just as he's about to utter those words, he gets hit by a bus, and his head just goes flying. And yeah. Marjorie, Marjorie ends up taking his head, and that's his origin story.
0: Yeah, she had this technology at home called Necrotech that would allow her to basically save a brain or save a... I guess in a situation like this, a decapitated head, like, if if she could put him into that machine within, like, 10 seconds or something, he could keep his consciousness alive, uh, being connected to it or something. Yeah. Whatever. It doesn't
1: really matter. He's just doesn't. A, a talking head. Yeah. Yeah. But when she finds out the news, she, like, loses it with him because she's like, you stabbed a guy in the neck and gave him regardless of whether he's a douche, that wasn't the right thing to do. And and then it becomes this moral conundrum because Harry actually sticks up for Tim and she starts saying, of all the things that you've done in your life, you can really look at him and say that he is any more reckless than, than you are.
0: Yeah. That yeah. was one of the things I did want to discuss about the story as well because I feel like the idea of morality is a constant theme in the story because like the lord of evil's plan is to rewrite human morality by changing the history of religion across time and then we have marjorie whose idea of morality is kind of in question because she's done a lot of crimes literal crimes i mean she's a criminal it's in the title of the comic and she's (laughs) also done a lot of
1: temporal. (laughs) she's (laughs) temporal but is she a temporal (laughs) Uh... (laughs) i don't even know what you're asking me now you said she's a criminal now i'm asking if she's a temporal yeah she's a temporal (laughs) criminal uh never mind, never mind. Go ahead. What were you going <laughs> to say? <laughs> you're not indulging me on this, so fine. <laughs> no, no. I I get I get what you're saying, man. I get what you're saying.
0: It's just uh, I I think I was confused because you said is she a temporal and the first thing that came to my mind was are you asking me if she's uh outside of the boundaries of time?
1: <laughs> no. I don't think it really matters. It's just you know, wordplay. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So what were you saying? Sorry. I was saying, oh, uh,
0: talking about morality. I said that she's a criminal, obviously. And all the flashbacks that we mentioned, she did a lot of horrible things to her sister over the years. We made her lose an eye as well as all the other injuries. So I think that moment when she... Kind of has that uh, moment of chastisement against Tim for what he did to that douchebag in the bathroom. Like that sort of self righteousness kind of jumped out at me because she, you know, she's done all these awful things without showing any kind of remorse. But when she hears about Tim's past, she's pretty dang judgmental about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think with morality as one of the undercurrents of the story, it's kind of interesting to see this scene because it makes you consider the protagonist's stance on morality and just kind of like, yeah, I guess hypocritical or just a lack of self-awareness that she has. Mm. Like it it surprised me that she would take such umbrage at what he did when she's definitely done things that are equally as bad, if not worse than what he did.
1: I do think you're right. Cause, well, I mean, I think you're right in talking about how morality is one of the themes of the comic. I, I don't know what I'd have to think about it some more to, to understand what exactly Ennis has to say about it because it's like you said, the very, like the very impetus for everything in this story is the fact that the Lord of Evil is trying to rewire morality for the entirety of the human species by changing these keystone moments, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the bigger picture of everything that's going on, yeah, I, I I'd have to really think about. What he's trying to say, like, it almost, it almost feels like he's talking about the objectivity of morality, but I'm, I'm not a hundred percent certain. You know, yeah, this idea that, yeah, I don't have it, I don't have it on me. But,
0: mm-hmm. I was thinking that based on this comic, and maybe I'm also, uh, applying some of the stuff that I've gleaned from reading other Ennis comics is that religion is not the place to base one's morality on Yeah. And yeah, that that's a viewpoint that I don't agree with. But I think that's what he's generally conveying here in this comic and in a lot of his other sort of uh anti-religious themed stories. Right, right. Because yeah, I, I would say that the anti-religious aspects are definitely another big theme in Marjorie Finnegan, and that's like one of his, one of Ennis's pet themes that he goes back to in a lot of his comics. And for me, as a Christian, I think it actually makes a lot of his works kind of harder to enjoy because mm-hmm. I still read stuff like Preacher. uh I tried reading Crossed but I think even that was too much <laughs> I couldn't finish Crossed man
1: I think with Crossed
2: it,
1: Crossed is a thing where the message isn't the point at all because it's it's really about the shock and the value like that's definitely at the forefront of what you're getting when you read Crossed so I can I, understand not getting I think, I think getting, the message
0: The anti-religious aspect in Cross is still there though. It's just that there it's it's just a series that is so predicated on the grotesqueness of it and the shock of it that there isn't really any kind of nuance or discussion (laughs) at all. Or yeah, or redeeming value. Like there's I don't really get too much out of just seeing gross stuff on the page.
1: Yeah. But that's what I was trying to say, is that even though the The message is still there at the forefront is really all the violence and the and the gratuitous violence right, so you're really having to get through that stuff to get to the ideas and the theme at the core right and mm-hmm. if you if you're not necessarily inclined to whatever his message is it just makes it that much harder to like sit through or try to get through all of the really gross stuff and the shocking stuff to, to get to that. Right. Cause yeah. it, it really doesn't feel like there's a redeeming value to that at that point. Cause it's like, okay, I understand reading things that you don't necessarily agree with, but if the packaging of it means that I'm going to, get some sort of nuanced take on it by the time i get to it okay i can from from the perspective of art i can put myself through it but at this point i don't even know if it's really art because it's just you know so over the top violence yeah <laughs> such over the top violence
0: yeah like i don't know if i got anything out of what little of crossed that i did read and i wasn't gonna continue reading it to see if there yeah. was anything to begin because yeah after those first couple issues i didn't see the point to it yeah but at least with something like preacher even though that's like very blatantly anti-god and it's got just you know just tons of blasphemous stuff uh things that that are pretty offensive if you're a christian or a catholic or jewish or just have any kind of um you know respect for the concept of god in general like it's definitely Something that is very staunchly um you know against faith and against religion as a concept, organized religion, but at the very least, I can say that something like preacher still has other elements to the story that I could sort of like read through like Ennis's personal views on religion and yeah, you know, like I don't. A lot of things that I read in, in my fiction reflect a worldview that I don't necessarily agree with. But sometimes Ennis' stuff—it's it, not just that I don't agree with his worldview; it's that his his worldview like actively it's talks down to me. Yeah, it it actively talks down to me and insults me, and you know, just basically not only demeans my beliefs but also demeans uh the intelligence of people who believe those things it's actually pretty condescending to be honest but I'm able to you know ignore that and just like consume it for what it is and just accept that you know not everybody is going to you know treat every other person with like the greatest amount of respect or anything and like I don't have to take it personally like I don't have anything against Garth Ennis obviously like We've talked about a bunch of his comics, and I love a lot of his his other comics, but um, with preacher, at least, like there's things in that, even though there's so much energy spent just as a diatribe against religion and against God, at least there's st- still things in it that communicate like interesting ideas that are more universal as well, you know, just things like friendship and loyalty and brotherhood and and what that means. Like, there's still value in Preacher, I think, whether or not, like, ultimately, I can get behind or not get behind the worldview behind it. There's still, um, like, other elements to it that are pretty universal. So, I guess I'm just trying to say that there are times when, when you can read a story that presents a worldview that is contrary to your own and you can you know you don't have to react in like anger or just reject the story entirely but try and find you know things that it's saying to to supplement um the reading experience as a whole you know like there's there's still things in marjorie finnegan that i think uh were emphasized enough so that i didn't have to feel like this this whole story was this angry diatribe about how religion is awful and we'd be better off if you know somebody just pointed out how hypocritical or awful people are especially religious people yeah i don't think i needed to take that element of marjorie finnegan as like the ultimate underlying message of it it's it's a big part of the story. Yeah. But I think it's not the main point of the story either, you know? Like I think the stuff with the sisterhood that you mentioned earlier and just, you know, the fact that it's a romp, like to me that kind of overmatches the the tone yeah. of it where it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like the book itself is preaching to me that uh I'm a fool for having some kind of faith
1: I was going to say even though the crux of the adventure that they go on is that they're going to use religion to change the wiring of humanity as a whole right I I do think if you remove that element of it out it's it's not the it's not the staunchest most anti religion thing that i've ever heard from him i mean that's not necessarily good or great but you know it's it's (laughs) it's it's the sort of thing where like you said the adventure aspect of it could have been the adventure aspect of the story is more at the forefront of it than the actual statements on religion because really the way i look at it is he could have very easily just made it about, well, I'm going to go back in time and I'm going to change the Magna Carta, or I'm going to change the, you know, the Declaration of Independence, or what have you. And as a, as a, as a device, it would have worked exactly the same, right? Like for whatever effect he was trying to get across, it more or less could have just been a st- stand-in for whatever MacGuffin he needed to, to. To be the thing that changes people, right?
0: I, I think I think you have a point to an extent. Yeah. However,
1: I would say that
0: him that Ennis deciding to use yeah religious yeah. texts was probably the stronger that that would drive the theme home in a stronger way. Like yeah. If he had just done like the Declaration of Independence or the Magna Carta or the Constitution or whatever, sure. There's like a level of morality involved in documents like that in, you know, the fundamental governance of people, of a a nation or whatever. But I think when you think about morality and you go, you know, all the way down to its roots, like most morality, I think I would even, yeah, I would say morality is based on religion. Like whether or not someone is religious or uh an atheist, like everybody still has a worldview that defines how they uh you know comp comport themselves and behave. And it it takes just as much faith to be an atheist as it does to believe in any other kind of belief system, because atheism in and of itself is a belief system as well. But all that all morality does come from somewhere and when you try and trace down the roots of it like people where do people come up with their morality i mean a lot of it is from your various religious texts and you know for us in the western world i would probably say you know the bible has a lot of the basic foundation of that so to try and like completely disregard or dismiss it um it it kind of doesn't ring true or or make sense to me but i can understand why somebody who is a staunch atheist would reject it you know Mm -hmm. so like for me it's like i understand why he sees it like that i don't agree with it but i yeah i get it like i'm not gonna be like you should never write a story like that, or you can't tell a story. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's more just like, okay, that that's just how he feels about it, and I'll see yeah.
1: how he presents that idea. It's a more nuanced take on the subject, as opposed to just something that's diametrically black and white. And I think, and this is kind of a weird thought to have, especially since we're doing a podcast where we review comics and we definitely take. More than our fair share of pot shots at things that we don't like, but I don't know sometimes I think about modern discourse and how we've found a way to monetize this whole this whole thing of, yeah, if we can really just froth people up about what we hate that's that's success, right we and that's why whenever you look at thumbnails of reviews on YouTube it's always it always feels like it's it's either really great or this is trash this is terrible you know just just hot takes all around right and sometimes it just feels like i think people i think people need to have more reviews where you just go yeah that was fine <laughs> you know and, and and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't come to this thing where the takeaway is that was so terrible that it can't, it can't, we can't afford to have it exist at all. We have to just dunk on this so much that we have to teach future people a lesson about trying to make anything that's like this ever again, you know? So it really just becomes this thing where you're just sitting there and you're, looking you're you're sitting there and waiting for these other people these others to to screw up just so you can so it validates you and you can go see i was right anything that's that takes a particular worldview is just terrible and they should never make anything like that again and yeah i'm I'm not down with that and we need sometimes don't get me wrong There are some things that are genuinely bad, but it's due to lack of artistic merit or creativity or just being creatively bankrupt, right? Right. But I don't think the messaging of a thing is the thing that necessarily makes it bad. Unless it's an inherently hateful message, then, you know, it can just, you know, eat a chode. I forget. What exactly is a chode? Chode. I believe it's a it's a wiener that is only half erect. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's a funny word. It, it's a funny word. It's a fun word mm-hmm. to say. But yeah, like I think if if Drew with with the belief systems he has can if if you can take a comic that has a worldview that is pretty diametrically opposed to what you personally believe but you can still see through that to to just reading it for what it has to say and again not taking it personally like i think more people need to do that you know because you can go to youtube and you can definitely see just how this this comic was an fu to fans or you know this doesn't respect me as a reader or whatever. And it's, it's just, and again, I'm not saying that there aren't things out there that exist that, that don't respect people as a reader, but we just need to be more nuanced about how, how we view these things. And, and yeah, that's all.
0: Yeah. Be more discerning about whether or not something really is. Yeah. Disrespecting the reader or whatever. Uh, the group may be.
1: I'm learning to be more gracious about it, but that being said, Spawn still sucks. (laughs) 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 Nothing is going to change my mind about that. No matter how much of a better person that I want to be at the end of the day, Spawn is a dingleberry.
0: And usually whenever we make fun of a comic like that, there's... There could be a qualifier where it's like there. There could be a qualifier where we say something like, "Unless Alan Moore writes it, it's always gonna suck." But Alan Moore did write (laughs) Spawn,
1: and it still sucked. (laughs) You will never convince me that it won't suck. Uh, So, I I had a moment where I was trying to be above it all and I took it back down. <laughs> because no, see, it's that, signature. That's
0: exactly the Garth Ennis way. You know, you're combining <laughs> the high and the low all in one episode. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, going back to the theme of morality in, in Marjorie Finnegan, I I think there was one panel in the book that to me kind of summarized the the ethos of it all. Like the if there was a worldview that was being specifically promoted in the comic, I think it comes at the end of issue seven. That's the scene where both Marjorie Harry Marjorie and Harry are um sitting and talking. Uh Tim is in the middle of them and they're kind of like preparing for what they have to do while they overlook uh A scene of a bunch of MAGA idiots being stupid, but they start talking. uh, The two of them start talking with each other, and Harriet is trying to convince Marjorie that what she's been doing has just been like it hasn't been harmless fun, you know. Like she's done stuff that has consequences, and you know it's just she's telling her sister that what she's been doing with her life has just been as bad as what she got mad at Tim for about sticking a heroin needle into a, a dude's neck. Um, and at the end of the little back and forth, Harry says the world's a more serious place than you think. And then you flip the page and there's this big panel with Marjorie, her face is flushed and she's just yelling at her sister. Well, I don't want the world to be a more serious place. And then that kind of lingers in the air for a bit, and, you know, there's a beat with the silent panel, and then they continue on their conversation and resolve to stop the Lord of Evil and Stan from carrying out their plan. But I, f- I feel like that one panel where she says, well, I don't want the world to be a more serious place, kind of shows, you know, she she revels in what she's doing, and it's this...
1: That's her screaming out against Mm -hmm. conformity and uh, just the natural course of aging in life, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I think that it's the idea of hedonism. Like, I feel like that's the idea that undergirds everything that Marjorie has been doing. It's just the idea of personal pleasure in life, you know, that is the best thing. That That's what people are here to what do. What is best you know? in life? Yeah. <laughs> and for her, I guess it's not to crush her enemies and see them driven before her and to bathe in the tears of her... The lamentation
1: perfect... of their women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a line from Conan, by the way. Yeah. Conan, I was going to say Conan O'Brien, but Conan the Barbarian. <laughs>
0: Every time you hear the word Marjorie, you think of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Every time you hear the word Conan or Conan, you think of Conan Uh, (laughs) O'Brien. All these real people are are getting in the way of us thinking about our Uh, comics.
1: They're ruining my fiction, my capacity to enjoy fiction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like Marjorie's main goal in life is just to enjoy herself, and that's why she's been engaging in all these time capers and pranks and and stuff like that, and she wants to keep on doing it. if the Lord of Evil gets his way, then you know I guess there's still something in her that realizes that she can't let that happen, so if she can stop yeah. it, she's gonna do what she can. but it's kind of uh... ultimately, what's driving her is just the
1: pursuit of her own pleasure, I think. It's kind of an absurdist comic in the sense that, well, okay, when I say absurdist, what I'm referring to is Albert Camus' philosophy of absurdism, Mm -hmm. which is that idea that we as sentient beings are constantly going to ask these questions about existence and being and we're not necessarily ever going to get answers or at least that's that's the perspective he takes
0: yeah and, it's it's the idea that there is no meaning and yeah and exactly. like we we no matter how hard we try to understand we're we're just not intelligent enough to like use logic or reason to yeah. to kind of well understand the meaning of existence
1: yeah or even more than that like the possibility that no matter how much we try to get or try to you know study our way into some sort of answer sometimes we just won't get an answer and when you look at other like existential philosophies a lot of the times there are different tracks that they take which are some people do point to religion as an answer some people point to family but the thing about absurdism is that it it really just the the answer seems to be with absurdism is that if you can't get answers then you should live your life live your life to the fullest and i guess as you were saying hedonistically i, I don't know if like hedonistic I don't know if hedonism was at the core of what he was saying, but it was essentially saying you should just enjoy your life and live uh, with carefree abandon because uh, because that is how you resist the dread of not knowing what your what your existence is about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, because yeah, I mean one of the other like responses to that sort of existential dread was actually like some people were actually saying that like suicide is that response. And for like a lot of people that, that's just not a viable option, you know? So uh, yeah, if you're going to have these existential questions, but you're unable to reconcile them uh, with, these other thoughts, the the natural course for that is to, according to Albert Camus, just not ask these questions and just to live your life. <laughs> but that's kind of what Marjorie – I was going to say Marjorie Taylor Greene again. <laughs> but that's kind of what Marjorie Finnegan is, is saying here, right? It's like I don't have the answers here, so I just want to live a less serious life
0: yeah yeah that's a good point man i hadn't thought of it that way but i find it difficult to try and counter anything you just said that actually rings pretty true to me
1: yeah I, like i didn't realize it until you you pointed that out to me though but that's yeah it feels accurate
0: yeah definitely overall this book even though it's more on the light-hearted side yeah more of a I guess you could call it a farce. There is stuff to think about, you know? Like, we've obviously talked about it for probably a little bit longer than I expected. Especially
1: talking it out right now. Like, uh, I didn't go into this episode thinking that we were going to have a full-on discussion about existentialism, (laughs) you know? Like, I I was just going to talk about you know, the stuff that made me laugh. <laughs>
0: yeah. But all that stuff is there if you look look at it, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's easy to overlook it when you have, you know, a scene with uh, a fetus inside the womb killing his own <laughs> twin. twin. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay. This is, the, like, again, it's just mixing up those, like, really highfalutin philosophical ideas and themes with really far out there violence. And like, it's, it's something that's almost a a parody of itself, you know, like it's definitely done with self-awareness. I think like that's one of the things that makes the comic work is that they're not thinking that they're showing you something, uh, with all complete seriousness, you know, like there's a, an irony to it. There's a a dark kind of comedy to it. You know, when the Lord of Evil is born into the world, he's just an angry little baby that, you know, yells at his mother and calls her a skank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and to add to that, so he's in the womb with his twin brother and he's like fully self-aware and then he sees this hook go in there as and he realizes that she's trying to have him aborted so he just gives up his twin brother yeah <laughs> <laughs> and when he comes out of there he's like it's such a
0: ridiculous so character. indignant yeah <laughs> I'm like the way that they that Goran Suzuka draws the scene of him in the womb with his twin brother and the hook that goes inside. It, it's like yeah. so disturbing, yeah. like, but creative too. You know, like I, yeah. I can't say I've ever seen a scene like this in a in a comic before. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There was uh, there was uh, another scene that I wanted to talk about that I mentioned earlier in, in terms of Gor Goran comedic timing and. It's the story that Marjorie tells when she talks about her marriage to Stan. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how they were together and, and you know, they had this one magical night where they were young and they were in love and they were doing all this and that. And, you know, just in the throes of passion, whatever. Right. And it's the scene where Stan is kind of gloating and he's talking about like all this stuff that he did he thinks he's hot stuff right so he's like what we're just talking right now so just tell me what's what's the craziest thing you've ever done in bed and it's such an earnest scene because it's just this close-up of her face and marjorie is just looking at stan and we're, what we're seeing is her looking at stan and she's looking at him with such loving eyes but her answer is just one word like hockey team or something like that soccer team she says two words two words words, right it's that made me laugh because it's it's such an earnest buildup and the way that again the way that she's drawn it's she's just looking at him with just such a gaze and to have that be her answer (laughs) it was uh pretty ridiculous
0: (laughs) yeah and and then he uh stares at her in shock, and then later on, um, apparently while she was sleeping, uh, he got out of bed, and then she's looking for him, so she goes into the bathroom, and she finds that he's hung himself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, so she gets him down from the the, the makeshift noose he made for himself. And she tries to, like, give him chest compressions. But the way that Grant Suzuka drew him in that panel, he's lying unconscious on the floor, but his tongue is hanging out of his mouth like a dog. <laughs> it's like a cartoon, a cartoon drawing of death or something, you know? Like, it's,
1: it's so comedic. I wanted to read this section out. There's, at the end of the book, there's a... There's a letter or or an essay, I guess, a brief essay that Garth Ennis writes about Marjorie Finnegan, and he mentions Goran Sutska in it, where he says, Now, as they say, we're cooking with gas. Art, Goran Sutska, The guy can basically handle anything, not just in terms of what he can draw, but of the tones he's able to capture. Horror or humor, hate or hysteria. He takes it all in his stride. Follows the script and nails the faces. Misses none of the details. Very much my kind of artist. Goran instantly makes the brilliant suggestion of colorist Miroslav Merva. Yeah, that's basically what he had to say on Goran Tsutska. So you have an idea of just what Goran is able to do.
0: Definitely. That's all true. Like you see it all in this comic. The horror and the humor. The hate and the hysteria. Yeah. The high and the low, you know, it's just a mix of these sort of mishmash tones. But overall, there is still some kind of cohesive narrative to it that holds everything together. And I'd say his art does go a really long way in terms of nailing that cohesion. Yeah, I could definitely imagine this comic with lesser art and I definitely wouldn't have enjoyed it quite as much.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because, I don't know. Sometimes when I think about some of uh, Ennis's works at smaller publishers, um, not to call anybody out or anything, but I think if you consider some of the more indie comics that he's done or the ones with smaller publishers that he's done, some of the... I don't... I don't know if they're random artists or if he actually like wanted to work with them, but some of those guys aren't too impressive and it makes it kind of hard to read those works. Like the works that are more like jokey or just uh irreverent um or the ones that are kind of predicated on the gross out kind of stuff that he likes to indulge in. Like, if, if the art isn't really strong in those books, it's really hard to read
1: those. It's just another layer of resistance to enjoyment, really. Um, yeah, I, I hear you on that. Yeah. All right. Well, you got anything else?
0: Uh No, I think we covered all the scenes and the topics that interested me you have any final words?
1: Uh, I guess we could go over what our recommendations for would be for people who want to check this out or who have checked it out and would like to read something on a similar tone or note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got anything? Well, I guess we can start off with some of the more
0: obvious ones. Of course, the other major Ennis-Suzuka collaboration we mentioned earlier, it's called A Walk Through Hell. Now, that's a book I haven't personally read, but I believe you have read it, so you want to say anything about it, Albert?
1: Yeah, I I think that's definitely more on the serious end of what they're trying to do. It covers a lot of the same themes on their take on religion, and that might be something that where it's a little harder to overlook because it's... It's more of a horror story, but the horror is predicated on just the nature of people, and uh, yeah. It, so, so it might be a little hard to get through if 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 those are if that's where you're coming from in terms of your worldview. But I do think that there were things about it that were pretty haunting in in terms of what you were walking away with uh you know even days after you had read it so you know that's a testament again to just both of their abilities both Garth Ennis and Goran Sudska to tell this story uh that really leaves you with a sense of unease with just the kind of world that they live in um and again uh, Goran Sudska in in the case of Marjorie Finnegan was Telling a more lighthearted comedy, and it just really shows his range to be able to tell this really deeply chilling horror story in a walk through hell. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. And then yeah. a couple more of the obvious picks. Uh we mentioned them earlier this episode, but Hitman and the Marvel Knights Run of Punisher, I feel like those books have a kind of similar tone to something like Marjorie Finnegan because, as I mentioned earlier, they both contain a lot of the sort of irreverent humor and a lot of the absurdity of how silly comics can be. But they also have heart behind them. And there's... Hitman in particular has some pretty great emotional highs. Uh, So those are... Both worth checking out if you enjoy Garth Ennis comics and, uh, you know, you want something from his bibliography that isn't one of his really serious war comics. Another fun Ennis comic that I would point out is his short story arc on Midnighter. I think he did like five or six issues of it. Midnighter, the Wildstorm comics DC superhero character, and the reason why I highlight Midnighter is because it's another Garth Ennis comic that involves time traveling shenanigans. Because that story has Midnighter going back in time to kill Hitler.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever read that one? I never read that one, but it's a funny concept, isn't it? I mean, I feel like that's fifty percent of the things that people want to do when they go back in time. It's it's 50% kill Hitler and 50% get rich. <laughs> so, I guess that's a pretty decent thing to be in the top two of. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Any recommendations? I only have the one, but I felt like this was a comic that... Is pretty in line in the spirit of Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal. And it's Chrononauts by Mark Miller. And I believe Sean Murphy was the first artist. And then uh, there was a sequel to the series, too, called Chrononauts Future Shock. And that was Eric Canetti. Eric Canetti, yeah. And these are both not very serious comics either that just happened to revolve around time travel. Uh, And I do think that Mark Miller does come from a similar school of thought in terms of writing as Garth Ennis. Like, I don't think he would ever out-Garth Ennis, Garth (laughs) Ennis. But I will say that Mark Miller, when he's blasting on full guns, he has done some pretty... Some pretty uh, intensely painful uh, stuff of his own. Uh, you know, he he pushes the envelope on that uh, on that level as well. Not quite to the degree of crossed or anything, but yeah, uh, like he's definitely. In the ballpark of where Garth Ennis is in terms of those stories, but yeah, chrono- he can get pretty edgy at times too. There we go, edgy was probably the word I was looking for. But I do think that Chrononauts, if you're just looking for a story that's a romp about crazy time travel shenanigans, that's probably what is probably the closest thing that I could recommend to Marjorie Marjorie Finnegan.
0: Yeah, that's a good pick. I especially like the second one because I'm a big fan of Eric Canetti. His art is awesome, man.
1: Yeah, Mark Miller tends to get a pretty good right a pretty good artist on on his books. It's uh, it's something that he's done. I mean, I guess he's had a pretty long career in comics, so he's accumulated a lot of good relationships with people. So, and, and some not so good. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I wait, who think, who are you thinking of? <laughs> do you really want me to say?
0: <laughs> I can't, I can't remember.
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure Grant Morrison doesn't like him.
0: Oh, okay. I, I thought when you said that he, he's gotten some uh, not so good people. I, I thought you actually meant like he worked with some shady characters or somebody who ended up doing something really bad.
1: Oh, I mean, it's just the business. Yeah, like sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes things happen and even had some though, kind of falling out. Yeah, even though you start off on good terms, uh, things happen, you know? Like I don't know who who's at fault for what or who did what to whom, but again, things happen. It's it's that's just the nature of business sometimes and or life. Or life. Yeah, exactly. But that being said, uh yeah, if you look at his Mill World stuff, they they generally have pretty good artists on most of it he He gets good people, yeah, and at the very least, even if
0: they're not what we would consider very good, we can recognize that they have name recognition.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Heck, Mark Miller, go give Gordon Suutsko a call, put him on a book, put him on a book. <laughs> that'd be fun, man yeah.
0: One more recommendation I have and this is something I thought about um, or I, something I remembered after you mentioned Chrononauts because it's another zany time travel shenanigans kind of story uh-huh. but some years ago Dark Horse published uh, Matt Kent and Scott Collins' comment called Pastaways. Oh yeah,
1: I remember that. You ever read that one? Yeah. I did. I, I don't remember it too well but I do, I do like Scott Collins, and I like Bad Kent, so yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a great creative team, and it's been a long time since I read it because I want to say I read it like pretty shortly after it first came out, so it must have been like six or seven years ago for me. My memory of the specifics of the story are kind of fuzzy, but the main thing I do remember is that it was a fun time travel story about this team of time travel explorers or adventurers they they are from the future but they end up back in i guess what was the present day so like 2015 or something and now they're you know living in our times and dealing with primitive uh people of our era when this rift opens up and you know there's all these dinosaurs and cyborgs and other things coming out of the portal that they have to defend uh the 21st century from so it's pretty zany as they do all that stuff and try to find a way back to their time
1: yeah yeah i i feel like i haven't seen scott collins in a while or like i haven't seen anything by scott collins in a while
0: yeah that's true i think that's the last thing i can remember him from Oof. but it's possible that he has been doing other stuff that i just totally didn't realize
1: Yeah. He's a good artist. Yeah. You should, should get more work. Uh, oh, well. Well, if there's nothing else, then if there's any of you that are listening that would, uh, that that have anything to say, that want to con- contribute to the conversation, please feel free. You can hit us up on Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com or You can tweet at us in between the gutters, or you can DM us, slide into our DMs (laughs) on Instagram. You know, uh, whatever you happen to be listening to us on, if you could give us a high rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on, that would be much appreciated. Share and subscribe, all that stuff that they make us say. Tell all your friends and loved ones at gunpoint.
0: To make sure that they listen, like, subscribe.
1: (laughs) Don't use guns. Guns are terrible. Karate chop them. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Use nunchucks. Threaten them with the power of nunchucks.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. This is Between the Gutters, signing off. Peace out. Bye-bye.